Uh, well, good afternoon. Good to see you all again. Uh, put your hand up if you were here last week. In this excellent, great, fantastic. We'll refer to some of that as well uh, in a minute. Um, just before, while I get ready up here, can you tell the person next to you the last uh, concert that you went to, if you've ever been to a concert, and tell them what it was and whether it was good or not? Go, 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 go. Tell them, tell them. <laughs> great, great to hear you talking. This is excellent. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to talk to you about that, but I'm going to pray now, if that's right. I'm going to pray, first thing, that I don't have to blow my nose too often during this, so excuse me if I have to. I've been a little bit sick. Uh, but uh, I'm going to mostly pray, this is the most important thing I'm going to pray about, I'm going to pray that today people in this room meet Jesus. Yeah, that's it. That's what I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask that God works in this room to do that. And I'm going to uh, pray that with confidence. So let's start, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for bringing us here today. We thank you that you brought us here from all situations, all circumstances, uh, we pray, Lord, for anyone who's in here today that they would meet you. Lord, I pray that you'll give me the right words to say. I pray that the words will come by your Spirit and press into our hearts here today. I pray that you'll uh, give me strength to get through with my sickness. And, um, Lord Jesus, we ask that by the end of this uh, message, we will be so captured by what you have done for us that our lives will move in response to that. And we pray, pray these things, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. So there I was with 20,000 other people in Asa Arena. And there I was, right, 20,000 people. The last concert I was at, 20,000. And there I was with... 19,999 teenage girls and me, I was there to see Justin Timberlake. There I was, seeing Justin Timberlake. How on earth did I end up at the Justin Timberlake concert? I do not know, except there I was with my wife, right, at the Justin Timberlake concert. And I'm telling you, this was an intense concert, man. They were like, was anybody there? Okay. Uh, <laughs> One girl, two, and a guy, good on you, you were there too. Yes, come on, and there we are. And we're there, and there's all these g- girls, screaming teenage girls, right, at the top of their voice, and there I was, right, and I could not believe it. Somehow, by the end of the concert, I was there, up on my feet, a 30-year-old Asian male, <laughs> up there, trying to bring sexy back with Justin Blake and the whole crowd. I was there moving it, jumping around. How did that happen? I have no idea how that happened. I'll tell you what, this was incredible. This is the first kind of big concert I've been to. And when I was there, I could not believe, right, I couldn't believe the, 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 the power this guy, Justin Timberlake, had over the crowd. It was unbelievable, right? This guy, this guy, could, this guy would walk onto the stage, right, and he could, he could do anything. It doesn't matter. He could just, he could just stand there and just kind of bust out a weird dance move and just kind of pop his leg out. Wow! And these girls go, ah! And they stop there and just go, boom! And everyone goes, ah! It was unbelievable. This guy had a whole crowd in the... In, like, it was like putty, right? He could just mould them, do whatever he wanted. And, and it was unbelievable. He, he, could, he, could, he could tell anyone what to do from the front. He'd, he'd say, alright. He'd, like, he'd be like, alright, I want everyone to clap! And everyone was like, yeah! Like this. And, and, and next thing I know, I'm kind of just... My hand's just moving. I'm just... <laughs> I'm just doing it, right? I want everyone to stand up. I'm mixing on my, my, my legs are going to... I'm just standing up. And he says, I want everyone to start, scream, I love Justin! And I'm there going, I love Justin! And I'm like, 
How did this happen? How did this happen? And there we were, there we were, at the temple of Justin Timberlake, and we were there worshipping this guy. It was unbelievable, I couldn't believe it. Two hours later, there I was, and I was like a teenage girl. And there I was, I was just, I was, I was there, and we were worshipping Justin Timberlake. Yeah, the thing is, uh, there was this, this thing that happens at concerts, this thing that happens at moments like that, where people just are so in love with a person, and that becomes so contagious, right, that that affects everybody. Now, interestingly, we're going to be looking at a story today of someone who is so in love with someone that they did something, and that affects, uh, actually the scriptures say, affects, didn't affect everyone in the room, but it will affect everywhere, everyone, everywhere, throughout all of history, whenever this story is told. So we're about to look at that, but I wanted to start with the idea of worshipping Justin Timberlake, to, 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 tell, you, um, to tell you that um, I think that, uh, I think all of us, I think all of us worship something. You might think, are you sure? Are you sure we do that? I said, yes, I am. I said, tell you what, I think the way God made us, I believe God made all of us, and I think the way God made us is that God, I guess you could say, hardwired us for worship. He made us to worship Him. And I think the essence of what sin is, the essence of disobeying God, what happens is, we go through life, and instead of putting Him in, we don't just sort of go, okay, we worship nothing. What we do is, it's more often the case where we just where we actually push something else in there that we worship. We put something else in that spot, and that pushes... God, man, that's, that's what Justin Timberlake sounded like, kind of like that sound. That's great. <laughs> sorry, no, that's okay, sorry. And here we go, right? Here we go, here we go. And I've lost total of What am I talking about? Uh, God. Right, good. We're, we're the right, I'm in the right place. We're talking about God. Good. Now, here's the thing, right? We, we take God out of the picture. It's not like we take him out and say, okay, let's worship nothing now. We put something else in there. Something, someone, and we push God out. That's how I think it works. My question is this. Who or what are you worshipping? We've got to start with that. Who or what are you worshipping? You, you don't know? I tell you, I, I can tell you how you will know. What is the thing, the person, the, the thing, the object, what is it? The, 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 the image, the personality, what is it that you are so in love with that it is easy to put your time and energy towards? What is it? Your time, your energy, your money. What is that thing that is, you know, it's just, it's just second nature, it's easy, bang, just like that. Once you've worked that out, that thing, person, something, someone, whatever it is, that is what you're worshipping, that's your God. And, and and you've got to understand, this is for, for Christian or non-Christian alike in this room, this is an important thing to think through. Because for me, I know God is who I'm supposed to be worshipping. I'm a pastor, right? I'm, gonna, I'm willing to get up here and tell you this from the, from the, from the get-go, right? I know God is who I'm supposed to be worshipping. Right? But so often I find that hard work. I find that the thing that doesn't naturally happen for me. Why? Because it, it happens easily when it comes to other things. Now, another way you can do it is this. You can look at your last credit card bill, if you, can, if you have the credit cards. Uh, look at your last credit card bill and just look through it, right? And see, see where all the money is going to. That's another way to work out what is it you're worshipping. It could be anything. It could be anything from sport to uh, music to food. Well, it's probably food. <laughs> what is it that you worship? Whatever it is. You see, when you've worked out what you worship, it, your response to that thing, person, it, whatever 
is like a reflex reaction. It's like a reflex reaction. And today, we are going to see someone who you so clearly know who they worship. Because they have an incredible reflex reaction to this person. In fact, let me just tell you, uh, uh, the story that we're about to see between Jesus and a woman, uh, a whole lot of commentaries that I read this week right, told, tell me that uh, they, they say lines like this, bold statements, right? and I, I think I agree, they say that this story, this interaction between Jesus and this woman is perhaps one of the most powerful interactions that Jesus has with anybody, full stop, that we have recorded. It, is, it seriously is an extraordinary story and you are not going to believe it. When you get into this, you are going to see the weight of what happens. And my hope is, over the next uh, you know, uh, 20 minutes, I want to see, I would love all of us to get into the story, to actually understand what is happening here. It is a really powerful scene. In fact, there's a whole a lot of other reasons. Um, if you, some of you may have a Bible there, some of you don't. But um, uh, there's a whole lot of reasons why uh, this story is so powerful. Let me tell you firstly how it's set up. Okay? Um, I'm going to presume most of you don't have Bibles in the lap, so here's what I'm going to talk to you about. Right? You've got 11 verses. There's 11 sentences or 11 verses in there right, that, that fill up the story. And what happens is this. In the Gospel of Mark... He has this thing that he does. It's a fascinating thing he does. It's a brilliant piece of narrative work. What he does is, uh, the guy, Mark who wrote this, he often starts a story and you're reading it going, well, that sounds really interesting. And it stops. It just stops. And you go, what? And it moves to another story and you get the end of that story and then it comes back and finishes this story. You with me? Uh, the, the, the technical term for that, <laughs> would you believe, that I learned at college is called a Sandwich, right? So there's a sandwich, and there's a, there's a Mark sandwich that happens, right? And this is one of them right here. Because what happens is, what he does is, he does this thing where he tells a story partway like this, this and this, right? He breaks it up, and the whole point of doing that, why does he do that? What a weird storytelling technique. Why he does that is, to push the focus, oh, what was that? Push the focus towards this main central story, which is the key to unlocking the whole thing, you get it? And this, right, this is what Mark does here. And I'm going to show you this because what I'm going to do first is I'm going to actually deal with the two bits of bread on the sandwich, right, on the other side, before I look at the filling, which is where the main action is at. So I'm going to do this really quickly just so you know where we're going, right? So the first thing is this. As we kick off into the story, let me tell you where it starts. Some important context information happens here. Uh, after two days, in verse 1 you see, it says this, After two days, it was the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. Uh, just so you know, the Passover... And festival of unleavened bread. This feast, this feast. How do I say? It? I cannot capture for you the importance of this feast for the Jewish people. When it comes to national days of celebration, weeks actually a week of celebration, this was the main game for the Jewish people. Right. The Passover, uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, was a a time where they remembered a key event that happened in the history of their people. Right. All the way back in the Bible, all the way back, all the way back into the Old Testament, you've got the people and they're, they're in Egypt. They're under oppression, right? They're under oppression, but they've been under the Egyptian rule for 400 years, right? And what happens is they have this great moment called the Exodus, right, where they get out, they get out of that rule. God brings them out of that rule under the leader of Moses, the leadership of Moses. And what happens that last night, as you may remember, 
is that uh, the last of the plagues is that God sends the angel of death over uh, to take out the firstborn of all the households in Egypt. Yeah? And those who paint the doorposts with uh, blood, so it's pretty full on, right? There's an important reason, paint the doorposts with blood, that angel of death passes over. God's people get passed over. Yeah? And so this is what they do. They're celebrating this great moment of redemption. That is, the great moment of rescue. This is a big thing for them. Now, this is really important. The context is really important here. Uh, and, and obviously, they, had, they, had to, they were in a rush. They didn't make bread with yeast, and so it was unleavened bread, flat bread. Uh, and so they had this Passover festival of unleavened bread. For those of you interested, uh, the timing of this is interesting. Do you know when the timing is, uh, when this festival was, date-wise? Uh, they say the date of this was actually somewhere, they think, right in the middle of uh, the month that we call April. Right? Uh, and, and some commentators reckon they've got it as close to the date of the 14th of April. Here we are. We're doing this in real time, man. It's like watching an episode of 24, man. It's all the time. It's all happening, right? <laughs> <laughs> all right, here we go. Right, here we go. So we're at the Passover, uh, and I want you to know what happens in the Passover time to that city, right? To the area where all these Jewish people are, where they congregate for this big festival. Let me tell you, get your head around this. You've got to get your head around this. Uh, in, the, in that area, 50,000 people live. Right? 50,000 people live. Uh, I want you to realise that at Passover, not double, it doesn't just double or triple. Five times the amount of people flood into this little area. You, you've got to picture this. Right? Are you hearing the noise? Are you hearing the, 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 the traffic jams the, with all the camels all backed up against each other? Right? Are you feeling that? Are you hearing that? 50,000 people became 250,000 people. I mean, you, if you don't get this, I want you to imagine. Like, so, uh, imagine Sydney has a major, has one big festival equivalent of this. And uh, Sydney has, how many, how many people Sydney has? Four, say four million. Sydney has four million people, right? Sydney has four million people. I'm talking about this. If the, if the Passover was there and we were Jewish people and it was four million of us, one fe- on, on over one weekend or something, you know what happens? Four times five. What is that? 20 million people. 20 million people flood into Sydney. That's the population of Australia. There we go. I'm really good at this census data stuff. I'm all over this. Here we go. 20 million. All of Australia picks up. Everyone in Melbourne says, we're leaving Melbourne this weekend. And we're all going to Sydney. All of Brisbane says, Brisbane's closed down for the weekend. We're all going to Sydney. And uh, all of them just leave. And they all come to Sydney. Uh, what do you reckon that weekend will be like? And it, can you just, I mean, you're you picturing this? this? You do not want to drive on this weekend. Right? <laughs> this is a bad weekend to drive. This is what happens. I'm, I'm kidding you not. This is actually it. I'm not making up the figures. This is about what would be happening at Passover time. It's busy. It's massive. This is a major moment. The Romans are in charge, right? Probably looking at this going, man, this is crazy. Oh, this is a lot of people. A lot of people. And so what happens next? A couple of the religious leaders, here we go, the chief priests and the scribes, what were they doing? They were looking, just at that time, for a treacherous way to arrest and kill him. I want you to realise that all the way through the Gospel of Mark so far, all the way back to chapter 3, right? Right back then they were looking for a way to destroy Jesus. That comes up a few times all the way through Mark, but never as poignant, poignant, can't even say that word, uh, uh, never as sharp a time as this. When it wasn't just like they were trying to destroy him or tear him down or stop him doing his ministry. What they wanted to do here was really clear. Did you hear? 
the religious leaders here were looking, not just for a way to get rid of him, and not even just to kill him, I guess, but they were looking for a treacherous way to arrest him and kill him. This is where it steps up. This is where it steps up, just before Easter. And they're wanting to do this. They're wanting to take out Jesus. And what do they say? What do the religious leaders say? They say, ah, not during the festival. Now you're getting right? They're not during the festival. Or there may be a big riot. And when they're talking about a big riot, they're not just talking about a lot of people, which is one thing. What, what are this lot, of, what, this lot of people who are coming? You, you know the feel, right? What are they celebrating? They're celebrating being rescued from their oppressors. The Romans are there, right? Their oppressors. And the religious leaders are like, okay, their blood's all pumping for like, rescue, rescue, we don't want to be oppressed, all that kind of stuff. That's what's happening in Passover time. And they're saying, this is not the right time to do this. But they want to kill him. They want to kill Jesus. There's one piece of bread. Right? You want another piece of bread? I'm going to jump to the end of the passage. Here's another piece of bread. Second piece of bread happens in the very last verse. And after the thing that's going to happen in the middle, Judas Iscariot, probably, perhaps, I won't say probably, I'll take it back, perhaps, perhaps because of what happens in the middle, decides to betray Jesus for money. And he goes out as one of the disciples, he's one of the disciples, and he goes and he betrays Jesus, sets into motion a whole stack of events that leads to Jesus' death. There it is, right? Both things all about Jesus' death. And what's happening in the middle? Here we go. Here we go. What happens now is quite extraordinary. Listen to this. I'm going to turn, I'm, I feel like this story is so powerful. Side point, right? I feel like this story is so powerful that any attempt I have to tell it, tell it to you probably takes away from it. But please try and get into the story. I feel like I could just read it to you. Right? Here we go. Jesus is there. And he's at a place called Bethany, uh, which is on the east side of a mountain called the Mount of Olives, uh, an important mountain in Jesus' ministry. Lots of important stuff happened up there. And he's on the east side of the Mount of Olives. And he's there at the house of Simon, who had a serious skin disease, Simon the leper. And there he was, I want you to picture it, he's in his house. And there they are, uh, all reclining on a t- uh, around a table. Uh, this is, you know, in that, uh, t- in that um, time, uh, how, how, how people ate was that, actually. They, they wouldn't sit on a nice table like us, uh, not like a, a formal table like us, on chairs with knives and forks and stuff. What they do is they'd all, it'd be awesome, you know, I'd love to live that time. They kind of, they might kind of lie like this. All the time, they'd lie back and they'd eat and just kind of pop a grape in it. It was fantastic. This is like every man's dream, right? Lying on a couch and just be fed grapes. There, there, there it is. And there he is. He's lying there. They're lying down. That's what they do. They're lying around the table. They're reclining around the table. And uh, it would have been all men. The men, uh, it was a, a, fortunately a situation, uh, a society where men would get that seat at the table. Which is why it's really important because who comes into the room next? A woman. So a woman walks into the room, right up to that table actually. She walks right up to the table. And who is this woman? Anyone know who the woman is? The woman, the woman's name is Mary. It doesn't say it in the passage here, but it tells us in, uh, in the equivalent passage in John, John's Gospel. Mary is the sister of Martha and, <coughs> excuse me, and the sister uh, of Lazarus, actually. So can you imagine, right? Mary, she's a really devoted follower of Jesus. She loves Jesus. I mean, 
Her brother got raised from the dead by Jesus. Right? So she is absolutely devoted to Jesus and she's often seen in the gospel sitting at Jesus' feet. And so there is Mary. And I want you to picture this. This moment is extraordinary. She walks in into this room full of men reclining at the table and she walks in towards Jesus and she's walking very carefully. Perhaps she's been walking for carefully for a while now to get to the house. And she's walking really carefully because she's carrying this alabaster jar. And what's inside this alabaster jar? She's carrying it. And why is she walking perhaps so carefully? Because inside here is liquid that is so important that you get what's inside here. That, it, that uh, in my translation here, there's three words used to describe it. Want to hear it? Here comes Mary in with an alabaster jar of, ready to hear them? Pure and expensive fragrant oil of nard. Right, let me tell you what this is. The first thing you know about this perfume, right, this perfume that is in this jar is this. The first one is this. It is extremely pure. This is concentrated stuff. Concentrated stuff. This is not, I mean, like I'm telling you, this is like high quality perfume. This is not your... It's not your Asian imitation ones, right? <laughs> I can say that I'm Asian, right? I know. We love making those Asian imitation things. You know, here, buy some, per- buy some perfume. This is called Calvin Kloon. And uh, here, try some Tommy Hulfiger. And uh, they change one letter and next thing they sell it for like $5. And so here, this is not that kind of stuff. We are talking about pure stuff. Pure, concentrated perfume. And not only that, I'll, take, I'll tell you the other word. It's, it's called nard. It's really fragrant. This stuff is actually uh, perfume uh, coming from uh, India, actually. From India. And this is the next word I want to say. It is expensive. That word is an understatement. What is the most you've ever spent on a bottle of cologne or perfume? I feel like a, what, 100 bucks? No? Better while since I bought perfume. Uh, you got, you know, and, I mean, this perfume is perfume, right? You've got like, um, you got, okay, alright? Which one do you want? Alright? This, right, is not really perfume, but it's, uh, you know, nice smelling stuff, and I'll go to Coles and get this for, I don't know, my wife bought it for me. How much does this cost? $10, right? No? How much does this cost? Four, man. <laughs> Who was that? Good. Asian, she knows price and cent. That's excellent. Fantastic, Fantastic right? Four eighty. Four dollars eight four dollar eighty for this one, right? And this one, right? This stuff is my man, this stuff is nice. This is precious stuff, man. And you know how precious like I mean I'm telling you, do you know how precious I use? This is called miracle. Oh <laughs> Paris. And uh, this is how much is left. You see? That's it. That's all I got left, man. That's all I got left in the bottle. Right, I'll tell you why, right? My wife bought me this one, right? She told me, she told me, I want, she looked at me one day very seriously and said, Steve, I want you to wear this. <laughs> now, if your wife tells you she wants you to wear this, I'm like, let's go, man. We are wearing this. This is my thing. This is it. So there's things like this and there's things like this, right? It's cost about a hundred bucks. 
100 bucks. My wife loves it. Now, I'm telling you, I've been very, I have been very sparing. This, I got this like five years ago. Right? It's like I've never now, 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 there's still that much left. I'm going to get as much. My, my wife, if my wife thinks I'm hot stuff in this perfume, I'm going to be like, like, <laughs> that's all I got left, man. I've got to make this go as far as I can go. And so here we go. Here we go. This is very nice perfume. It's very much my, my nice perfume. And it, I'm using it very, very sparingly. I want you to understand this, right? So here's the other one. Two perfumes. Uh, there's another perfume, and it's behind my head. Right? Uh, anyone know what this is? Let me tell you what this perfume is. This perfume is named Five Christian Number One. And what you don't know is that this perfume uh, has been made and it may, they make only 1,000 bottles of it a year for the world, in the world. The ingredients are so rare that uh, soon, I think, they won't be able to make it anymore because the ingredients will not exist anymore. <laughs> the bottles, you, ready for, you want to hear the price, don't you? The bottles. The bottles, here we go. They sell at Harrods. And... Uh, the bottles go for, ready? Ready? You gotta, you, I like how way for smoking. One bottle goes for $2,350. $2,350. There are no Asians who buy this perfume. Here we go. I tell you what. $2,350, man! This is for one bottle of perfume! Are you for real? The Guinness Book of Records has it as the most expensive perfume ever! Right? There it is, the most expensive perfume ever. Now, I want you to realise, imagine, right? Imagine I have one of these bottles of perfume, right? And, man, you better be hoping it smells pretty nice for $2,350, right? You better be hoping, men, if you buy this, you want to be hoping that women are running after you with this stuff, right? So you're holding it, you get this perfume, right? And I want you to imagine, I'll get this bit of perfume, and I'm like, my wife's like, oh my goodness, that's amazing, right? And so I want you to imagine, I get this perfume, she said, let's go out on a date, I say, great. I get this perfume, and I go, chip it on my head. <laughs> right? Are you joking? There's no way I do that, right? Like, I really want to smell nice night. Right, pour it on my head. This does not exist. Can't do it. That would be the biggest waste of money you can ever imagine. That thing costs four dollars eighty. <laughs> this thing costs hundred bucks. This thing costs two thousand three hundred fifty dollars. How about the jar of al- the alabaster jar? How much? How much? Anyone know? Hey, tells you actually in the passage. Oh, everyone's looking for a few minutes Verse five. End of verse five, I think. Yeah, except it's more than 300 denarii. More than 300 denarii. Now, you guys are thinking, I don't know the latest exchange rate between dollar and denarii. <laughs> so here it is, right? Here it is. You want me to tell you this? I want you to get your head around this bottle of alabaster jar and how much we're talking about. Ready? Watch this. One denarii. One denarii. So let's say there's about 350 plus... Uh, it says we're 350 plus denarii. One denarii is equal to a working male at a time, his, his wage for a day. Right? For a day. That means that that bottle is worth a year's wages. That means, in real terms, what, are we, what was the next time, next time you go and find a bottle of perfume of $50,000? Right? Let me know. <laughs> that is what we're talking about. Buy a lot of these bottles for that. She's holding an alabaster jar of perfume worth potentially around the ballpark of fifty thousand dollars. 
She's holding that, right, more than 300 denarii, and she's, now she's, see why she's walking carefully. And she brings this jar, right, this alabaster jar, all the way up towards Jesus. Just so you know, the historical, how, how these things work. Do you know, why is she holding a jar of $50,000 worth of perfume? Do you know how these things work? I'll tell you how this works. They're a family heirloom. To add to the value of this, so you understand, this, these things that, that the historians say, uh, I'll read some archaeological stuff about this, these things get passed down from generation to generation to generation to generation. She's holding it. Her great great her great her mum passed it to her, her mum's mum passed it to her, her great 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 grandmother somehow acquired this and has passed it through the generations and it's landed here with Mary. And so what she does is she holds this precious thing. Fifty thousand dollars worth in this alabaster jar of nard. And she goes towards Jesus. Let me tell you what the jar looks like. The jars, the archaeological pictures have pictures of all these jars, alabaster jars. There's a round little bulb down the bottom, right, and a long slender neck. <coughs> That's how they look. And what she would have done is she would have grabbed this little bottle, and she takes this fifty thousand dollars worth of bottle, this family heirloom, and she walks right up to Jesus reclining at the table, and she snaps. This is how it works. She snaps the top of it. Already there's shock. When she snaps it, this is how they open the bottles. She snaps it. And she gets this bottle and she tips it on Jesus' hand. All of it. You're in the room, you're watching this? There it goes. The, the perfume is going down. It's on Jesus' head. It's, it's flowing down his face. It's flowing through his beard. It, it, it's a great... Crazy scene. It's dripping. It's going all the way down, uh, down through his garments. In fact, um, he's he's getting drenched in this stuff. In fact, uh, in, in John's gospel, it tells you that he goes all the way down to his feet. The perfume goes all the fifty thousand dollars worth of perfume goes down to his feet. And in fact, to see show, to show you you're in the room, you're in shock. You're like, I can't believe she broke she broke it. She's broken. She's poured it. She's poured all of it. It's on Jesus, on his head. It's going all the way down to his feet. And do you know what? To make matters, uh, to make it even more shocking, just so you know, in John's Gospel, you actually find out that that Mary then she uh, her hair would have been tied up. Do you know why? Because in that time, uh, uh, it was said that the the woman's glory is her hair, and she would hold that up until when she'd come of age, right? Until she got married, right? And she would have had her hair up, right? And what happens is she takes her hair out. And her hair, long hair comes down and she bends down she uses her hair and she wipes Jesus' feet. And she wipes Jesus' feet. I want you to imagine this room. I mean, forget even just what you see in this sense. Smell. The room's filled with this amazing aroma. Why? Why has she done this? No wonder they're going to talk about this for years to come, Jesus says. Why? Because, friends, what you see here is amazing. You see here extravagant worship. You see Mary so moved by what, by who Jesus is that she wants to do the most amazing and honouring thing to him that she can think of. And what do the others do? What do the disciples do? They, they express indignation. 
They snort with indignation, actually. The word's actually the snorting of a horse, would you believe in Greek? I don't know what that sounds like there. I don't know what to do with it. They're snorting, right? They're upset. They're saying, what a waste. It's going to be sold and given to the poor. And Jesus says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. You always have the poor with you. You can do good for them whenever you want, but you do not always have me. He knows what is about to happen to him. Jesus is about to head to the cross. Jesus is about to die. Jesus is about to die. And he says this, She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. And I assure you, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told in memory of her. See, here's the question. Here's the, the finish. What I want to say to you is this. How are you reacting to that story? I think there are three reactions that happen that we catch in this story, and I want to suggest to you that, one, that all of us have to choose which way do we react. first one is this. The first group that we heard about, the first two are religious reactions. The first religious reaction we found out was this, uh, was firstly from the chief priests and the scribes, the religious people. For them, Jesus was a threat to their norms. Jesus was coming in and it was rocking their world too much. Worshipping God was fine without him stuffing things up with his radical religion that he was bringing in. They had their nice, neat type of religion and Jesus hates that kind of religion. He hates religion that does not call on a life of following him when he's at the centre. And I want to say to this, for so many of us, our picture of religion and following God is neat and tidy and we think we know how it should be. But I want to suggest to you, this Easter, I wonder whether this Easter is a time when Jesus might be challenging that. And Jesus might be saying to you, whatever your picture of Christianity is, if I am not at the centre, then it is not Christianity. Friends, I want to encourage you this Easter to let Jesus' death be that thing that becomes the centre of your life. Second reaction is this. The second reaction with the disciples. They are looking on at this scene. They're looking on at this scene and they could not believe it. They looked down on anybody who would make a decision like this. I mean, what a waste. In many ways, I guess I would say, the, the disciples intellectualised, right? They intellectualised and they decided, you know what, uh, that should not have been done, that could have been used for the poor. They intellectualised their response to Jesus. And so often, I think religion or Christianity moves unhelpfully into a place where we intellectualise it. Right? We intellectualise it so much so that we forget that what Jesus wants is our heart. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm going to, I'm going to put this disclaimer out right now, so you've got to hear this, otherwise you won't hear the rest of it, the rest of it properly. Here we go. Ready? I'm not saying for one moment that faith is not intellectual. Right? That you just leave your brain at the door somehow. I'm not saying that remotely. No, 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 no. I'm saying it's, 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 it's not less than that, but it's more than that. Okay? Faith is... Not just, not just intellectual, but it is calling on, uh, it is your heart moving to follow Jesus. If I can just do a real side point here, I hope it's okay, I haven't talked with the EU leadership about this, but I'm, I think it's okay. I'm, I'm going to say this, a little challenge to, to the Evangelical Union and all of us in here as well. I think a challenge for, the, for, for, for Christian groups on, in university campuses, I think, actually can be that uh, because um, we're in an intellectual environment, uh, pushing our minds towards uh, Christianity becoming just an intellectual thing, sitting around philosophising about Jesus, talking about him, etc. Not, 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 not that any of that is wrong, 
But if that kind of talking and thinking about Jesus does not push your life towards being moved by who Jesus is, if that's all that, that, that this Christian group becomes, that's when you decide to fold the Christian group. You don't need to do that anymore. Because that stuff is moving, that needs to push you towards a heart response to Jesus. My question is this, are you someone in this room who has just your whole life gone through and just intellectualised Jesus? Just be willing to talk about him and engage with him, and engage with others about him, talking like he's a science experiment. But today Jesus wants you to move from that, to move your heart, he wants to move your heart towards him. So what is the right response? This is where I finish. The right response, friends, is this, is what I call extravagant worship. Extravagant worship. Mary there pouring that thing onto the, the perfume onto Jesus' head. Uh, someone wrote this beautiful expression. They said, that "Beautiful thing." They said, "A beautiful expression of love, which with with which possessed a deeper significance that she could possibly understand." Two things happened, right? When she poured that thing on the head, you might be thinking, "Why did she do it?" Two things are happening behind the scenes that you must know. She was proclaiming Jesus as King as she did that. You've got to hear this. Isn't this amazing? That Jesus, at the beginning of his life and the end of his life, guess what happened? The beginning and end, he was given costly gifts. You remember the costly gifts at the start from the wise men, right? From the kings, on the way to the end. And all, every king in the Jewish uh, history is, is anointed. Jesus, friends, is king. You need to hear this. He's king. That means he has a claim over your life, a claim over this world, a claim over you. And this is why you need to respond to him. The second thing is this. Isn't this an amazing thing? That's why the sandwich was there. You see, at the time when, Je- when men were trying to get Jesus ready for death, right? In the middle is an act that really prepares him for death. What happens at the end of Mark's Gospel? Do you know that? Two women run to the tomb. What are they running to the tomb to do? No, they don't run. So they walk to the tomb. Why? In the morning, why? To do what? To Jesus. Anoint Jesus' body. Did they do it? Why not? Because he was risen. But the anointing happens here. The anointing happens here. Jesus is saying, this is his mission. His mission is to die. And he comes and he dies and he does that for you. And that is why he is someone worth worshipping. You see, when you are, forget Justin Timberlake, right? But when you are captured by someone, when you are captured by someone like Jesus, who has done everything for you, who has gone to the cross for you, who has died for you, your heart, your life moves automatically in response, just like it did with Mary. It moves to live for Him. It moves to respond to Him. And I want to challenge you today. If there's anybody in this room who today feels like they have caught what Jesus has done for them and they want to respond to that, I challenge you to come and talk to me. To be brave, even though that might look silly and you might feel like there's fears around that, like the disciples were looking on it and Mary mentioned how silly she felt when they started to scold her. No matter what it is, I want you to come and talk to me afterwards and say, you know what, I, like, I want to respond to Jesus. As I close, I want to tell you that last, uh, last week uh, a girl came up to me after the talk and uh, she was really brave because at this point I, I made that challenge and she came down to the front just here and I was standing just down here and she came down in amongst the crowd as, you got, as the rest of them were coming out. She came down with tears in her eyes and she, I could tell she felt awkward coming to talk to me. And she felt maybe a bit silly. But she came and she just all she should be out was saying this. She, says, she said, I think I've understood today what Jesus has done for me and I would like to follow him. 
and I'd like to talk to you about that. And she became a Christian last week, which is phenomenal. And I want to say to you today, will you be someone who is so captured by who Jesus is that you are moved to respond to him? Why don't you make this Easter the Easter where Jesus' death is not just another fact, but it's something that moves your heart. Let's pray. As your eyes are closed, what I want to do is this. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray a line at a time. And if this is the line that you want to echo to God to follow Him, why don't you do that? And then after you've prayed that, come and talk to me. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for living a life not worshipping You. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for rising for me. Thank you for forgiving me about my sins. Please come into my life and help me to live a life of worshipping you. Amen.